chapter 7. We're in the middle of Solomon building the house of the Lord. Tells us as it finished this that Solomon last week in chapter 6 finished the foundations, built it, and we talked about how it was just laid and decked in gold. How the inner sanctuaries of the temple was gold laid on gold laid on gold and that artistic touch of no contrast in the room solid gold floors ceilings walls solid gold cherubim and the light it was reflecting off of gold what a image that must have presented to someone if anyone could ever look at that it would have been mind-boggling and now it says as we finish up here it says now solomon was building his own house 13 years So that's quite a long time to build a house. If you can remember back in chapter 6, verse 2, it says, As for the house which the King Solomon built for the Lord, uh, its length was six... Oh, I'm sorry, that's the dimensions. was 60 cubits, its width 20 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. And it says that it took him seven years to build the house of the Lord in the uh, verse before uh, in chapter uh, 6, if you'll read back there. So... Seven years for the house of the Lord, 13 years for his own home. And if you look at the dimensions, you're going to find out that his house is even bigger than the house of the Lord. Verse 2, he says, He built the house of the, uh, of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits, and its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. On four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams on the pillars. It was paneled with cedar above the side chambers which were on the 45 pillars, 15 in each row. There were artistic window frames in three rows. And windows uh, was opposite window, I'm sorry, window was opposite window in three ranks. So what you're seeing is basically that this is a a three-story high building with uh, windows running down the side of it. And like I said, if you see this, it's 100 cubits, which a cubit is a foot and a half. So it's 150 feet long by 75 feet by 45 cubits high. So if you figure 10 feet for every story, you're basically getting uh, 45 cubits high or three or four stories or four big tall rooms, if you would, in each floor. But he's got a big, massive house, bigger than the Lord's. And I kind of find that a little interesting here. Solomon, he granted his is decked in gold on floors, ceilings, and walls. But dimension-wise, I think it might say something where you go, gee, Solomon, you built yourself a pretty nice spread. And uh, it says, all the doorways and doorposts had square artistic frames, verse 5, and, the, and a window was opposite window in three ranks. Tell us that again. It must have had beautiful windows. Then he made the, uh, the hall of pillars. And so this is something outside, probably in the garden area, if you would. Its length was 50 cubits, and its width 30 cubits. And a porch was in front of them, and pillars, and a threshold in front of them. He made the hall of the throne where he was to judge. So I guess if you had to come and visit King Solomon, you wouldn't come you know, walking into his house. You'd go off to the side to his judgment seat, and he had a special area that he would sit and talk to the people, make judgments. It says the hall of judgment was what it was called, and it was paneled with cedar from floor to floor. His house where he was to live, the, uh, out, uh, the other court inward from the hall, was of the same workmanship. He also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, who Solomon had married. So I can't quite understand that if it's saying that she's got her own house. And it looks like there's a big house, there's a hall, there's the uh, judgment hall, and then there's another area around it, it sounds like. And it sounds like he lives on one half, and then she gets the other half, or whatever it is. But Pharaoh's daughter, and we talked about her, she had a big spread that was probably sizable to what the temple was itself. So that always bothered me, I guess, if you think of Pharaoh, Pharaoh's daughter being married into King Solomon. You wonder if that was something David arranged because David took care of all the other details of Solomon's life. If he was trying to say, hey, we're going to make a peace arrangement or if this was just the stupidity of Solomon marrying into Egypt of all things. God's always had a problem with Egypt 
Egypt was the place for proximity where if Israel had a problem, you'd go and hopefully make an ally with Egypt. And then if somebody was attacking them, they could call and say, hey, Egypt, bail us out. God always hated that. He always said, hey, you got a problem, you talk to me. You know, who is your God? That's defined as whoever you turn to first in your time of trial. If you're going through the worst trial of your life, then you say, that's it, I can't handle it, I'm going to go get drunk. Well, there you just turn to your God. I can't handle this, i got to go do blank. You fill in that blank. If you're a born-again Christian, you should say, man, I'm going through the worst trial of my life. I want to get on my knees and say, God, help me. And so here... Solomon's married into Pharaoh's household and God's like, I don't like this. And this has got to be the seeds of their destruction. Their alliance on a a foreign power to bail them out other than the Jehovah God. And so he's got this huge spread and he's building this uh, palace, if you would. And this woman uh, that married her, the daughter of Pharaoh, has got a pretty nice spread on it as well. And it says, verse 9, All these were of costly stones, of stone cut according to measure, sawed with saws inside and outside, even from the foundation of the coping, the coping and so on the outside, to the great court. The foundation was of costly stones, even large stones, stones of ten cubits and stones of eight cubits. These are massive rocks that they moved into place. And above were costly stones, stones cut according to measure in cedar. So the great court and all around had three rows of cut stone and a row of cedar beams, even as the inner court of the house of the Lord in the porch of the house. So Solomon built himself. He built first the Lord's house, seven years. Thirteen years, he's building his own spread. And boy, he's working and working and spending and spending and spending. It's kind of a... Weird thing is, I guess they're both, the temple and Solomon's house are both 30 cubits high. At least he didn't exceed the height of the temple, but he definitely exceeded the size of the temple. And I, I, I look at poor Solomon, and we've been talking about the seeds of his destruction. And he's pushing the limits of saying, look, God's over here, but ah, me, look at me over here. And that's always dangerous. You don't want to build bigger than God. I guess uh went to Philadelphia. A friend of mine was kind of giving me a tour of the place. And, and if you ever go to Philadelphia, it's kind of a ratty little, you know, East Coast town. Don't want to rip on it too much, but it's not a very attractive town. There's a lot of little small buildings there. If you notice, Philadelphia's got the hallmark, you know, all the houses are side by side by side by side, and they're all the... Thing and everybody sweeps their steps in the morning type thing and right there on the sidewalk type scenario. And I guess they designed the city way back when and when they had William Penn was the great hero of Pennsylvania and they built the city capitol there in Philadelphia and they on top of the dome of the capitol building you have William Penn standing there and for many, many years the rule was you can never build a building taller than William Penn. Nothing can go higher than him. So he sits on top of the Capitol building and it would be, you know, an anthema to build a building that would be higher than William Penn. So hence, the city's kind of sprawled out and everything's kind of short and scrunched together, I guess. I don't know, but that's the way the story goes. And and I guess it's kind of the same thing. You go, here's God's house. You figure you wouldn't want to exceed that. That's kind of dangerous. Would you want to be given the task of building God's house? I mean, this is a church. This isn't God's house. Well, we want it to be a place where God rests. But a temple, a temple is supposedly the place where God resides. And here you're saying you don't want to build this thing, your house, to be bigger than what your your spot for your God is. What an insult in a sense. And yet Solomon's kind of pushing the envelope. And so he's been building this beautiful temple. And uh, builds his house next to it. And then it says, verse 13, Now King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. Now this is not the same King Hiram that we talked about last week. This is just another guy and it's going to make a distinction for us. And says he was a widow's son from the tribe of Naphtali. So he's, he's part Jewish here. 
And the father was a man of Tyre, so he's kind of a half Jew, half uh, Tyranese, whatever that would be. They're really in the region of Sidon, so there'd be a Sidonian. But this guy, was a, he was a worker in bronze, and he was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill, God-given gifts for doing any work in bronze. This guy could do anything. So he came to King Solomon and he performed all his work. He fashioned the two pillars of bronze. These are notoriously famous pillars. And that gives us these dimensions. It says there were 18 cubits was the height of one pillar and a line of 12 cubits measured the circumference of both. He also made two capitals of molten bronze to set on the tops of the pillars. The height of the one capital was five cubits, and the height of the other capital was five cubits. So if you could see, you know, you think of these pillars, and then the capital was this big kind of rock, you know, cornerstone thing they set up on top. And so, if you would, these things were huge. There were, it says, they were nets of a network of twisted threads of chain work for the capitals, which were on top of the pillars. Seven for one capital and seven for the other. They'd throw some nets over it to make it look decorative. And he made the pillars and the two rows around on the one network to cover the capitals, which are on the top of the pomegranates. And so he did for the other capital. The capitals, which were on the top of the pillars in the porch, were of lily design, four cubits. There were capitals on the two pillars, even above the close to the uh, rounded projection, which was beside the network, and the pomegranates numbered 200 in rows around both capitals. Thus he set up the pillars at the porch of the nave, and he set up the right pillar, and he named it uh, Jechin, Jechin, how's that? Jechin. You almost want to say Jason. Jechin, right? And he set up the left pillar and named it Boaz. And on the top of the pillars was lily design, so the work of the pillars was finished. So if you would, you're seeing these two massive pillars that are going to sit, it tells us, in the front of the temple. And for us, I guess a pillar is just, you know, whoop-de-doo. But I guess back then it's it's a pretty uh, impressive to have the size of your pillars. These are your huge edifices to the sky. It's a show of workmanship just to have this huge pillar. It's a, it's a massive thing. It's telling you how big that they are and how thick that they were. And some of them would go with some of the dimensions that uh, Josephus could give us that they were three or four fingers thick, I guess, in each direction. And you could see the size of the pillar itself. And if you thought that they were 18 cubits and plus the pillar was another five cubits and then it had another base of, you know, 10 cubits, they'd be sitting there on some type of porchway. Basically, if you could follow all the dimensions, you're looking at almost 50, 60 feet of these huge things going up that were solid brass. It's a, it would be a feat, I guess, you could look at that and say, wow, these are huge structures, and both of these structures would pillar over where the temple would be. So the temple and Solomon's house would be this high, and then you've got these two monstrosity pillars going up. And it, and it has a visual effect on the person looking at the temple. I don't know if you can remember our old church building, but if you were there before we built the walls, you'd walk into that room and you go, what a little chintzy room this thing you're never got to seat a hundred people i can remember you know saying we're going to try and get a hundred chairs and i go we ain't ever going to get a hundred chairs in there i just lose my sound no yes everything's fine test test 10 it was too loud at first you can hear me anyway right brett so uh if you walked into the uh, old sanctuary Rob, the architect, he did a really cool thing. He built the walls really thick, and then he made the archway. And then as you walk through this archway of really thick wall, you'd kind of walk through it, and you'd have this effect of going, oh, wow. And that always impressed me, that you could make a very small room look big if you had a certain entrance to it. 
And in a sense, that's what's happening here with these pillars. You would want to say, you know, there's some cool visual effects happening here. You'd see these monstrosity of these huge pillars standing there, and you have a sense they go, wow, these things are big. And then if you walk into the temple and, you know, it starts to see all the cedar, the wood, and the paneling, and the gold, and the everything, everywhere you go, wow. And the temple definitely had that effect of being impressive. And what stood it off is, is you'd walk through these massive bronze structures. You could look at these things and say each one of these things, if you do some of the measurements of it, would be like 20 tons of, of bronze for the pillar itself. And then if you do the dimensions around the same thing for these capitals, you're seeing that these things were like eight tons of bronze. That has an effect on you. As you walk into the place, you go, wow, that, that thing's huge. And if you get the dimensions of the capital, you're saying that these things are big. They're sitting there on the foundation. You look up to these things, and it, and it wants to give you that visual. It wants you to, to think of the majesty of God when you're walking into that place. And it had a purpose for intimidating you almost to a sense to show you your size and the majesty of God. And it shows you, if you would, the architectural genius. I guess you'd have to look at it. We live in an age where everything is, you know, put together with cranes and architects do all this weird stuff to make things happen. And uh, we take for granted a lot of things. But I guess if you're way back then you'd look at this huge eight ton capital sitting on top of this pillar and you'd scratch your head and you go how'd they get that thing up there right that's the question you'd ask yourself how'd they get that thing up there and it's a pillar it's a pillar of strength and support is what it boils down to and you'd say wow there's not a wind there's not you know a snowy day that this thing's just going to fall off it has the strength is exuding from these huge monstrosity things that are sitting there and it's there to show you the intimidation to show you the value and it has the pomegranates around it which is you know uh, kind of a, a reddish type fruit that uh uh Yes, it's a fruit. I hope it's not a vegetable. Someone will correct me. But it's got a gazillion seeds in it, and it's just thousands of these little seeds, and if you eat them, they're terrible to eat because there's just seeds. And But for the illustration, God uses pomegranates a lot to show fertility, strength, you know, seeds spreading out all over the place, God prospering us, if you would. It's a nice symbol there. And uh, and there's pomegranates all over the place. they got the nets and the lilies, and it's quite a quite a scene. And even at that, Solomon turns around and he names them. This, uh, the Jachin is, means, uh, means he establishes. That's what he names one of them, Jachin. And then the other one is Boaz, which means in his strength. So here are these huge pillars and you're supposed to look at that and you go, God established us. And then the other one, it's, it's, in his strength, it's going to sustain us. And you walk into the temple and you got to, it's almost saying, remember where you came from and remember what's going to keep you here, God. And you walk through that and you go, whoa, there's Jachin and then there's Boaz. And these huge pillars were, were supposed to have that idea of, of, of remembrance of the past and a future for how we are to live our lives. And if you saw all these things coming together, you would say, wow, a, 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 a temple. Uh, uh, here it is, a, a picture of God working. And these pillars are there. I guess men love to build things. Men love to build tall things, right? It, it, it is a feat and it can be used in the opposite direction where man builds things out of his own pride. We have the, the bridges which, you know, span the, the rivers and say we're going to stop the river and cross it and this river will not stop man. We're going to build the Washington Monument, if you would, this huge edifice to the sky to say this is rock solid and us men can build it. We have the twin towers, right, which were in New York, same twin pillars being built up. They were feats of man's engineering to say, look what we can do. And of course, we have the fabled story of the, the book, or the, of, uh, or the Tower of Babel, 
And it talks about this in Genesis chapter 11. And you can see where it gets set up for it's, it's wrong. Where's my story here? Chapter 11, verse 1, you're seeing the famed Tower of Babel. And it says, Now the whole earth used the same language in the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. That's in modern-day Iraq, if you would. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. So they're going to do a construction project to please themselves. And they say, Otherwise we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, he's looking at man's construction project, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, Let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad uh, from there over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel uh, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. That's an amazing story. Here, man uniting together is deciding to build a monument, a tower, uh, uh, the Tower of Babel, to say, we're going to come against God. God's looking at it, scratching his head, and he says, this is kind of a scary thought. I don't particularly like man uniting. And if man unites together and they're all speaking the same language at this time, God says, I don't want to see man united. There is a a power in the unity of man. All of us binding together. And God says, I don't particularly like that. Now, we love it as a church. Unity in the church is precious because we know the power of unity. When all of us are binding together in one heart and one accord, as we're praying together, as there's no division and fighting in the body, then all of a sudden the power of the Holy Spirit can be unleashed. But if that power of unity is used for perversion, it kind of catches God's attention. And he says, I'm not pleased with this because they're trying to build an edifice themselves to say this is our strength. So they have their tower. And God says, I hate their tower. I want to destroy it. And I want to stop man from uniting and being happier united together without God. And so he foils and he says, we're going to cause everyone to speak a whole bunch of different languages. And so you got the languages that are spread out, and hence Babel, blah, 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 blah. Everyone's sitting down there all of a sudden where they used to be able to communicate. We see the starting of many different languages, so man can't communicate and unite and come against God and build their edifices t- towards God because they put pride and say, look what we did. So this huge tower, it can be strong, If you want to have God and look at this and say, look what my God has done. Or it can become a very false deceptive thing where you can put pride in yourself. And the Lord says, eliminate this. Get rid of this. We need to scatter them abroad over the face of the whole earth so they could stop doing this. That's a powerful little example. but, But men see these things. And yet we're going to see, it's strange, if you wanted to see the end of these pillars. It's sad when we see the day when Jerusalem Jerusalem falls, Israel's being ripped to pieces, and these pillars are being hacked to pieces for scrap, and they're being dragged away. Turn with me, if you would, to Jeremiah. Turn to Jeremiah 52, last chapter. It's kind of an epilogue of the chain of events of what's happened in Jeremiah's ministry. 
And it tells you that these things were being ripped apart. Let's just go with Jeremiah 52, verse 12. It says, Now on the tenth day of the fifth month, which was the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard who was in the service of the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem. Verse 13. He burned the house of the Lord, the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Even every large house he burned with fire. So all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down all the walls around Jerusalem. Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away into exile some of the poorest of the people, the rest of the people who were left in the city, the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon, and the rest of the artisans. But Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. Now the bronze pillars which belonged to the house of the Lord in the stands and the bronze sea which were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried all their bronze to Babylon. So they took away the pots, the shovels, the snuffers, the basins, the pans, and all the bronze vessels which were used in temple service. The captain of the guard also took away the bowls, the fire pans, the basins, the pots, the lampstands, the pans, and the drink offering bowls that was fine gold and that was fine silver. The two pillars, the one sea, the twelve bronze bowls that were under the sea, and if we get to that, we can talk about those being made, and the stands which King Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all these vessels was beyond weight. As for the pillars, the height of each pillar was 18 cubits, and it was 12 cubits in circumference and four fingers in thickness in hollow. And a a capital of bronze was on it, and the height of each capital was five cubits with network and pomegranates upon the capital all around, all of bronze. And the second pillar was like these, including pomegranates. There was 96 exposed pomegranates. All the pomegranates numbered 100 on the network and all around. Then the captain of the guard took uh, Searia, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest, with the three uh, officers of the temple. He also took from the city one official who was the overseer of the men of war and seven of the king's advisors who were found in the city. These are all going to be hostages. And the scribe of the commander of the army who mustered the people of the land and 60 men of the people of the land who were found in the midst of the city. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon in Riblah. Then the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was led away into exile from its land. And here Jeremiah is looking at this and he goes, this is what I'm telling you. Israel started with such promise It had these huge pillars that were saying, remember who established you. And then it had this other one, remember whose your strength is. And as you look at the temple, you should sit down and say, these are the pillars on which I lean on. God established me. God sustains me. You got to remember those pillars on what you're going to stand on. And what happens in Israel is they forget to do those things. Those pillars, the pillars of their society were destroyed and ripped apart for scrap. And here, Babylon, right? The Tower of Babel, which was foreign and a base and disgusting. These Babylonians who had their own edifices built to their own pride, they're the ones coming in and hacking apart the very ones that God had established and saying, you people have forgotten your roots. You've blown it. And it's a stinging rebuke. And he says, look what's happened. You've walked away from these pillars. Read, read. Let's go back to Jeremiah 16. Hear what, hear what the prophet has to say. God's upset with his people. They turned their backs on him. 
And God's going to start to punish them. And God's allowing this because you're going to see that they forgot their pillars. Chapter 16 of the book of Jeremiah says, The word of the Lord also came to me, saying... So here's the prophet. He's get the revelation of the Lord. He says, You shall not take a wife for yourself, nor have sons or daughters in this place. Sorry, no happy days are here again. For thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters born in this place, and concerning their mothers who bear them, and their fathers who beget them in this land. They will die of deadly diseases. How's that for a blessing from God? They will not be lamented or buried. They will be as dung on the surface of the ground and come to an end by sword and famine. And their carcasses will become food for the birds of the sky and for the beasts of the earth. This is what I think of these people. They're arrogant. They turn their nose up at me. They're going to be like dung on the street. Wow. For thus says the Lord... Do not enter a house of mourning. And when they die, I don't even want to see a cry for him, Jeremiah. Don't cry for him. Don't enter a house of mourning or go to lament or to console them. For I have withdrawn my peace from this people, declares the Lord, my loving kindness and compassion. Both great men and small will die in this land and they will not be buried. They will not be lamented, nor anyone gash himself or shave his head for them. Oh, you're not going to sit down and say, my mama, I'm going to cry and just gash myself. No. There's no sense of, 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 of loss here, God's saying. Neither will men break bread in mourning. In your time, the voice of rejoicing and the voice of gladness, the voice of the groom and the voice of the bride. So no more happy days. Now, now it will come about when you tell the people all these words that they will say to you, for what reason has the Lord declared all this great calamity against us? So here, God's going to say, Jeremiah, you go in there and you tell them I'm mad at them and happy days are gone. And so, God's already anticipating. What do you mean? What did we ever do wrong? He says, For what reason has the Lord declared all this great calamity against us? And what is our iniquity? Or what is our sin which we have committed against the Lord our God? And then you're to say to them, It's because your forefathers have forgotten me. Hmm. Past declares the Lord, and have followed other gods and served them and bowed down to them. But uh, me, they have forgotten and have not kept my law. You've forgotten where you came from. First pillar, Jachin. And then he says, verse 12, You, you too have done evil even more than your forefathers. For behold, you are each one walking according to the stubbornness of his own heart, his own evil heart, without listening to me. So you're forgetting what sustains you. See that? Pillars were there. Remember how you got there? Remember what sustains you? God says, when you forget these pillars as you walk into my house, and you don't remember how you got there and what's supposed to happen in your life, you're going to slip. Babylon wants to come in and rip you apart. We have the same pillars. It's pillars in our life. We can sit down and say, i got to remember where I came from. I was lost. I was a drunk, stupid idiot. I did a lot of dumb things in my life. And I better remember that the Lord called me out of that and He saved me and His amazing grace came into my life and I cherish that. And I better remember what's going to sustain me. And as soon as we forget those things, those two pillars in our life, when those are eroded, the powers of Babylon are going to come marching in, destroy those, and then we're going to be without our God. 
verse 13. So I will hurl you out of this land into the land which you have not known, neither you nor your fathers, and there you will serve other gods day and night, for I shall grant you no favor. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought us up from the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But as the Lord lives who brought us up from the sons of Israel from the land of the north, and from the countries where he has banished them. So he's saying, oh, remember how you guys sit around and says, oh, I remember how good God was. He delivered us from the hands of the, of the Egyptians. And now he's saying, oh, your next statement's got to be, you're going to remember how good God is because he's going to deliver you from the Babylonians who are going to come into this place and rip you to pieces. It's kind of a little thing. It says, for I will restore them to their own land, which I gave to their fathers. So there's a hint of blessing to come. Behold, I'm going to send for many fishermen. So we think of that and we say, oh, God's going to send us fishers of men. We're going to hit fishermen. But these guys are the guys that are going to hunt down and track us to kill us because we're in rebellion. He says, behold, I'm going to send for many fishermen, declares the Lord, and they will fish for them. And afterwards, I will send for many hunters and they will hunt them from every mountain and every hill and from the clefts of the rocks. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. And I will first doubly repay their iniquity and their sin. Here's a promise for you. Because they have what? Polluted my land. They have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable idols and with their abominations. And so now Jeremiah breaks into song and he says, O Lord, my strength and my stronghold and my refuge in the day of distress. To thee the nations will come from the ends of the earth and say, Our fathers have inherited falsehood, nothing but falsehood, futility and things of no profit. Can man make gods for himself? Yet they are not gods. Therefore, behold, I am going to make them known. This time I will make them known, my power and my might, and they shall know that uh, my name is the Lord." The sin of Judah is written down with an iron syllabus. With a diamond point, it is engraved upon the tablet of their heart. Their hearts left God. And on the horns of the altars, as they remember their children, so they remember their altars and their ashram by green trees and on the high hills, O mountain of mine in the countryside, I will give over your wealth and all your treasures for booty, your high places for sin uh, throughout your border. And you will, even of yourself, let go of your inheritance that I may, that I gave you. And what was that? That was their land. They're going to lose their land that God gave them. And I will make you serve your enemies in the land which you do not know. For you have kindled a fire in my anger which burns forever. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength. So what does uh, uh, Jachin mean? You know, Jachin means he establishes us and Boaz means he's my strength. And so God's saying, What? You've made flesh your strength. You're supposed to look at God and make Him your strength. And He's saying, Cursed is you, the man who trusts in mankind and who makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush uh, in the desert and he will not see when prosperity comes. There's no root in you if you're going to trust in your own flesh. But will live in a stony waste in the wilderness a land of salt without inhabitant. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord, for he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream, that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green And it will not be anxious in a year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. And you just got to read the next two verses. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it?
I, the Lord, search their heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. God looks at us and he says, I'm looking right at your heart. As you look at that, he's saying, what's your pillar? Is your pillar, the Lord established me, the Lord sustains me? Or is your pillar, I'm going to trust in my flesh and I'm going to trust in me to get myself by through all the problems that I've got? That's the question that all of us have and says, where are my pillars? And if those are not your pillars, and you're going to start to trust in the Babylonian pillar and worship the false god of self and have your own pride, which is an abomination to the Lord. God wants us to be strong. Speaking of Philadelphia, why don't we turn to uh, uh, Revelation chapter 3. And I like this. Church of Philadelphia was supposed to be the, the good church. Uh, Thyatira, Sardis. Verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? Philadelphia means brotherly love. This is old Philadelphia, not the Philadelphia of America. But he says, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David and opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. Because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Good things. Behold, I will cause those in the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews, true people of God, and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you because you have kept the word of my perseverance. See that? That's a big word. Perseverance. I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have in order that no one take your crown, your capital. How's that for a term? He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, wow, to be part of the church of Philadelphia because your perseverance and not caving in to people attacking you that seem to be godly but are not, which is one of the hardest temptations when people come up and whisper to you a false religion. Babylon has a false religious system. Revelation chapter 17, the great harlot Babylon written on her head, the whore. And what is it? It's a religious system that comes in and it sounds real good, but it's not. They do not have a love for the truth, for they're deceived, according to Second Thessalonians. So, there's a lot of people who have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. Because two true Christians are going to sit down and say, I've got two pillars I need to stand on. I've got to remember who established me. I've got to remember where I came from. And remember that Jehovah saved me by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to come into the world. And I have to remember that that's what's going to maintain me is my testimony as I'm going to stand up and proclaim the good name of Jesus Christ. And so long as we have those two pillars, right, we're going to be powerful and strong and not to be deceived when those things that we no longer 
trust in, we turn ourselves onto our own hearts, our own flesh, we're really just in Babylon worshiping a false god. The heart is sick and desperate and deceptive. Our hearts want to tell us one thing while the Spirit of God is telling us another. Isn't that a little scary to think that within our own heart, within our own mind, we can deceive ourselves to such a point that we can walk away from God to become the enemy of God? And God is saying, don't forget as you come into the temple, remember your Lord. Hold on to these pillars. Treat them as valuable. They're immense. They're strong. They're there to put you in a sense of majesty to go, wow, God, you need that in your life. You need to always remember the the pillar of your strength of where you came from and where you're going and to say, Lord, it's all you. I'm living for you. And every day that we live our lives, it's so easy to get our eyes on circumstances. Problems happen in our life and that becomes the problem in everything that we pray for. Lord, take care of the problem. Take care of the problem. People come into our life We get agitated and upset and we start to focus on them. I think that's what spiritual warfare is. I don't know about you when I'm underneath spiritual warfare. I've explained this to a couple people. But man, for me, when I'm underneath spiritual warfare, I get tense, I get agitated. And I can just feel the level. You know, if something big is supposed to happen the next day, Satan wants to get me off track. And what happens inside of me is my agitation. I don't feel a sense of peace or rest. And then something happens inside of me. I, I grab a focal point. I'm not supposed to do this, and I, I, I don't want to. But all of a sudden, somebody does something, something happens in my life, and I focus all my anger right on that one point. I was pretty tweaked. We got our new dumpster. <laughs> so proud of our dumpster. I'm a dumpster owner. It's a big thing. We had it all set up. Every two weeks, they're going to come and dump it. We've been, you know, telling Sonny, you know, Sonny, don't put a lot of trash in the dumpster, man. We've got two weeks. We've got to fill it up in two weeks. So let's not throw all the garbage in there first, you know, in one day. So I'm driving home the other day and look at the dumpster and the, the lids are floating up on top. And I'm like, I stop and I go, what? The dumpster cannot be full back up I flip open the lid someone threw a stupid couch some guy drove in threw a whole couch right in the dumpster filled the whole thing up so I was just underneath a lot of spiritual attack and I'm telling you I was seething in anger for 12 hours couldn't sleep I was so upset that somebody put a couch in my dumpster What happens when all your anger and any spiritual attack focuses on a focal point, you start to lose perspective. You start to go, gee, you're losing it, pal. Someone throws a couch in your dumpster and you're ready to lose it. You know, you're a pastor of the church and you're going half-baked because of this one thing. You lose perspective. You lose balance. You're not thinking correctly. And then most importantly, I'm no longer doing what a pastor should be. I'm just angry about the dumpster all day. I'm sure you don't want to see your pastor just being angry all day because the dumpster's full. You can think, gee, Dave, you got more important things to worry about. Maybe Johnny or Susie needs to get saved or you got to go to the hospital and do, you know, something more pastoral than worried about the dumpster. But that's what you do. You, you, you have all this coming together and the heart is so deceitful and you begin to lose your focus and say, what is the point of my salvation? Where am I coming from? And I'm losing my pillars here. I'm only worried about the dumpster, the, the chair that's sitting in front of it. You're worried about the things that are happening. And God says, you keep your perspective. You keep your balance. You're going to do this by trusting in me and remembering, Dave, I saved you. And it's only by the power of me and the things that are accomplished that's going to sustain you. So it doesn't have a lot to do whether the dumpster's full or not. And we do that all day long. We lose perspective and we're no longer being effective in the areas that we should be because our perspective is poor because that's spiritual warfare and we have to sit down there and resist it. And I'm telling you, I was in a lot of prayer last night at the prayer meeting and finally the Lord just broke through in buckets and said, Dave, 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 Dave. Dave, 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 you got a problem in your heart. It's not the dumpster. It's you. What? 
No, my dumpster. No, it's you. You're right, Lord, it's me. I'm not, I'm not too balanced right here. And, and you have to get your perspective. You have to get your balance. You have to get the view of everything that's happening in your life. You've got to sit down and say, these are my pillars. It's the Lord that saved me. It's the Lord that sustains me. And I do not want to fall into a fallen system. And God is saying, it's he who perseveres. It's, it's a long haul to, to hang on to your sanity, people, and not lose balance, not get all upset about, you know, what Johnny said or Susie said or this happened or that happened. And we just lose our perspective. And God says, I want you to hold on, hold on for all that you have. You got to hold on to the things that are in front of us or we're going to lose it. And God says, I've got two pillars for you. It's Jesus Christ and it's word. Had a good quote. Oh, I liked it. Yeah, it was someplace in Revelation chapter 15, I think. We have the Word of God. Hold on to our testimony and the Word of God and the power of God comes through. Where's that? Revelation 12:11, And they overcame Him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even to death. So you've got three things that you're going to overcome the enemy on is because of the blood of the lamb. You're going to remember what you're saved, that you're washed and the cleansed and forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. And because of your testimony, it's an ongoing process and saying, Lord, I've been with you. I've got a track record. I can tell you what's been happening and I can speak forth my truth. And they did not love their life even to death and to say, Lord, I don't want to lose my perspective. I want to endure to the end and I want to be strong. So these two huge pillars, and I think we can end right there, are, are a sign as when you come into the temple to say, Lord, I want to remember. And it is so sad. The very thing that Israel forgot to do, they turned their backs on God and God's saying, I'll tell you exactly why. Your heart strayed from the truth. And now the pillars come tumbling down. The land of Shinar takes over. Babylon rules because we have shifted our perspective and lost our focus on God. Amen. Amen. Amen.